In this episode of 2000 Books, the always funny and entertaining serial entrepreneur Mike Michalowicz tells us why having the courage to say no is crucial to the success of our entrepreneurial ventures. Well, hello, hello, my ambitious friends, and welcome to 2000 Books, where we bring you the most important actionable ideas from the world's greatest books for ambitious entrepreneurs. Books in the field of startups, marketing, sales, productivity, management, leadership, strategy, self-help, and much more. And I'm your host, Manny Vaya. Mike Michalowicz is a serial entrepreneur who's had multiple multi-million dollar exits. He is also the best-selling author of three amazing books, Toilet Paper Entrepreneur, Profit First, and Pumpkin Plan. Today, we're talking about his book, Pumpkin Plan, a simple strategy to grow a remarkable business in any field. Mike, it's always so much fun chatting with you and talking to you. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me back, Manny. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, let's jump right into it. Tell us the story leading up to this book. You're a great storyteller, and I always enjoy listening to your story. So please tell us that. Okay, sure. So uh, it was a weird, weird confluence of events. I had brought on my first business coach ever. This is back in the 90s, late, late 90s. And um, we're talking about growing a business. And he goes, you know, you got to check out Pumpkins. And I'm like, what? He's like, you got to check out pumpkins. So I uh, went and went to a pumpkin farm specifically to study colossal pumpkins. And what I found is there's this group of farmers, they call themselves colossal pumpkin farmers, that can grow pumpkins like like 100 times bigger than ordinary pumpkin. Ordinary pumpkin will grow 10 or maybe 15 pounds, while these colossal pumpkins are now over uh, one ton. And what was fascinating and what my business coach, his name was Frank, what Frank was trying to show me is that extraordinary things can come out of ordinary beginnings if you simply run the process slightly differently. What I found is colossal pumpkin farmers only modify the growing process of the ordinary pumpkin by 5%. It's just a few things, but very specific things. And by changing these specific things, the pumpkin responds with explosive growth. And what Frank was showing me and teaching me through that experience was that we can do the same in our business. We don't need to try to change everything, which is kind of the endeavor of most entrepreneurs. This isn't working, fix it. That's not working, fix it. It's a constant change and fix. He said, no, 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 just change a few things. And I learned the parallels between colossal pumpkin farming and colossal business growth. That sounds <laughs> like a fun analogy, and I'm really looking forward to digging into it. Well, of course, I've read the book, but for the listeners, that'll be, this will be a fun journey to, to see the analogy. And the, and the good thing about these, um, these metaphors and analogies is that it, it really helps you remember the concepts way easier than, let's just say, somewhere where it has been written, but nobody has really put the analogy together. So let's start with the first step, which you say is seed selection. Yeah. So the ordinary pumpkin farmer um, is in what I call the cheap, easy seed game. The more seeds they can get, the more cheaply, the better serves them. And if you think about it, uh, the ordinary pumpkin farmer, the big season for him is is the Halloween season, you know, the October, the fall. Uh, actually, 80% plus of sales of pumpkins happen during that time. So they plant uh, seeds in these big fields, and the more they can grow, the better. You're in the quantity game, sell, sell, sell. But what was interesting is there's a, a huge volume of waste. If you've ever gone pumpkin picking um, and you go across those fields, go back to that field after Halloween 
uh, after the season comes to an end, and you'll see that like 30, 40% of the pumpkins that were grown are just rotting out in the field. The colossal farmer, it selects a different seed, which was fascinating. They don't pick that cheap, easy seed to get, whatever is the popular, highly produced seed at the time. They pick a colossal seed. And what they do is they investigate seeds literally under a microscope, looking for ones that match the soil content in their or area, the ones that match their climate. They look ones that have the most potential to grow colossally. So that was the first lesson I got from to grow a colossal business. Most entrepreneurs are in the cheap, easy seed game. I start a business and I say, oh, well, you know, what's my competition doing? It's the obvious, easy thing. I, I look at my competition and say, I'm just going to do it better. Uh, you know, my competition answers the phone in three rings. I'll answer it in one ring and I'm better. Uh, my competition does this. So I'll do the same thing, but just better. I'll look at their website design and I'll copy, but just make it better. So we just follow the obvious seat. Mm -hmm. So what we're, what we're doing, we're, we're just spraying ourselves thin here. Yeah, exactly. We spread ourselves thin. We try to do everything and we just try to do what our competition is doing. The colossal entrepreneur has a similar, a different approach. What they do is they look at three elements. First, they look at their own uniqueness, something we talked about the last, uh, last time you had me on the show. We were talking about what makes you unique. A colossal entrepreneur will take their own uniqueness and exploit it. Uh, one of my favorite examples is Apple because it's such a popular case study. And, but a lot of people don't know this, that Steve Jobs, one of the unique things about him was his phobia of buttons. <laughs> That's why he wears that turtleneck wall and, and other things. You know, type in Steve Jobs' button phobia, and it's just a fascinating study. Well, his phobia of buttons helps facilitate buttonless products. If you look at the Apple uh, iPhone, you know, there's like one little button kind of bedded in there. You look at the Apple mouse, it's like it's a buttonless mouse. They designed products. He facilitated the design of products that were buttonless, which meant he was the first company to blend technology with art. He used that uniqueness and made the business an amplification of it. The second part of the colossal seed is top client demand. Riches in the niches. We talked about this earlier too, where you take that uniqueness and you match it up to a community that it resonates with. Well, Apple didn't break into the mass market. That's not how they started. They first went after the educational community, media design, art, no surprise, technology and art, and they, they spoke to the art and graphic community. So they Uber catered to that community. The third element, and these all must intersect then, is systemization. A colossal entrepreneur will automate the delivery of that uniqueness to that community. And what I mean by that is, a, a, a systemized business, the entrepreneur will attract prospects, convert those prospects to customers, collect the revenue, have that customer thrilled with the experience, all while the entrepreneur is sleeping. You see, when, when, if a business can go full cycle from, from inception marketing and sales to delivery of the product and raving fans, all while the entrepreneur is asleep, that means the business is fully automated. It's those three elements. When they intersect, now you have a business position for colossal growth. Yeah, that is when you have a real business. Until then, you're, I guess, just a freelancer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're in the time for money trap. So if you just deliver your uh, product, uh, your unique product that makes you distinct in the market to top customers, and it's not systemized, that means you're the person that has to do it. It's a time for money trap. If you have a unique product and it's systemized, but there's no demand for it, well, then you're just in trouble, right? So that won't work. And then if you have uh, something that 
there's clients that want it and it's systemized but it's not unique, that means it's a commodity. So it's only when you have all three circles mastered do you have potential for colossal growth. Mm-hmm. And the next thing you have is uh, analyzing the sprout or sprout analysis and making sure that you have strong sprouts. So tell, tell us a little bit about that. So the most important part of the sprout analysis is looking at your customer base. You know, if you go to your customer base right now and you sort them out, there's some strong customers on there and there's some weak customers. Colossal farmers know this, that the pumpkin that has the most potential to become colossal is the strongest sprout. So sprouts are coming out of the ground. They identify the strong ones and they cater to those. They water those more frequently. The weak sprouts are pulled out because if it's weak in the beginning, it's going to be weak throughout. Well, this is true in our business too. You're so right. Hold on. Yeah. Why are we like, how, how about the idea that we just let the weak sprouts survive for a little bit and see how they grow or maybe we don't know yet. Are you saying what we are saying is that no, just kill it. Kill it. Kill it. I'll point to a study in a second, but um, the first thing that damages your business is if you have weak sprouts and strong sprouts, you start spreading your energy, time, resources over all of them. You start to actually neglect the strong sprouts. You're not you're 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 giving balanced attention to all, which means you're not giving you're not catering or giving more attention to the great. So it just, it's distracting. Now, and if your competitor caters only to the strong, your strongest clients are going to go with your competitor. So that's the internal problem. But here's what was fascinating about the study. Um, there was a company called Strategex. It's based out of Chicago. They ran a study of, um, of companies and their client base, and they found that of the weak clients, the lower quartile, 25%, um, the lowest 25% clients, these are clients that pay the least um, in services, are usually the smaller clients, so that's why they pay the least, they don't have enough revenue or demand, um, usually have the most complaints. They, they usually say, ah, you got to cater to me more. They force you to redo the work. Uh, they're, they're usually the hardest to serve, and they generate the least revenue uh, and are not profitable. The hope of the entrepreneur is, well, at least some of those one day will become a major player. So I got to stick with them. The study found that only 1% of those clients ever convert to a big client. 99% of them will never change. So that means your weak clients, there is a 99% likelihood they will never change. So stop pinning your business success on hope that a bad client will turn good. Instead, focus your effort on your good clients and finding more just like them. Absolutely. That makes uh, that makes so much sense when you think about it from the perspective of your own time and resources and effort that you have to put in and uh, and actually, in some ways, leveraging the 80-20 rule here. Yeah, yeah. That, this is what it is. Yeah, that's the 80-20 rule is Pareto's principle. Um, Pareto you know, was a, an economist in Italy and discovered that in nature that 20% of something often yielded 80% of something. Uh, he, here's a better interpretation. He studied his garden and noticed that 20% of the pea pods were yielding 80% of the peas. The 20% the, the, the of the pea plants were yielding 80% of the pea pods. That meant 80% were only yielding 20%. Well, this is true of our customer base too. An established business, if you look at it, and you, know, you, you can still be small in early stage, but if you have a few customers now, look at your customer base and Inevitably, you'll find this playing out that only that twenty percent of your customers, these are the best twenty, are yielding eighty percent of your revenue and your profits, and eighty percent of your customers are only yielding twenty percent. 
So our job is to focus on that 20% that yields 80% and try to groom it and grow it and cater to it and then find other customers just like that. Yeah, and forget about the rest. <laughs> and forget about the rest. And that's the hardest thing for entrepreneurs to do. It's very so hard. hard to yeah. say no because we believe all money is good money. Everyone's the same. If someone knocks my door and is offering me money, I'm taking it because I'm making money. And the irony is you're not necessarily making money. Taking money doesn't mean you're making it. It's how much is left in your pocket at the end of the day. So the guy, next guy knocks on your door and you start catering to him, you may not be making money, but the worst thing is now you're catering to him. So the next great client that knocks on the door, you don't even notice because you're catering to the weak client. We have to have this discipline of filtering out. It's really hard to do, but it's really, yeah. really effective if you do it. And I think Steve Jobs said that um, uh, the, the thing about focus, I, I can't quote him exactly the way he said it, but he said that the hardest thing is saying no, not necessarily focusing on that one thing, but saying no to 20 other things. Yeah. But in his, uh, I read one of his interviews and he said um, that what he attributes his success too. And you know, think about his success. It's not just Apple. It's Pixar. I mean, that's a billion-dollar company. What he attributes his success to has been his discipline of saying no to great opportunities. Listen, there's billions of great opportunities after there, out there. The question is, are you going to master one great opportunity and be the world's best at it, or are you going to cater to all these different opportunities and just be a mediocre player? Fascinating stuff. Um, let's move on to the next one, which you say is called the watering process um, and the difference between quenching and saturation. So, Yeah. Ordinary farmers, uh, ordinary pumpkin farmers use a, uh, what they call a, a saturation process. These big systems, you've seen them out in fields with the tires. They run over the fields and they, they drench the ground with water. The idea is they're in the quantity game. Lots of cheap seeds. You need to get everything soaked as fast as possible because it's a huge quantity. Colossal entrepreneur, uh, colossal farmers have just select seeds. And what they do is they go to the strongest sprouts and they hit it with just a little bit of water, the optimal amount. They leave and then they come back the next day and they, or the next hour and they do it again, leave, come back and maybe an hour later, do it again. They'll quench the plant for optimal water or abs, um, absorption over the day, maybe watering a plant 15 or 20 times a day. It's at this stage that the colossal sprout starts growing at a rate of five to 10 times faster than the ordinary sprout. And the watering process is a huge component to it. The translation to entrepreneurship is how we address our market. Ordinary entrepreneurs use a saturation approach. Old school was networking. You, you, you fill up your pockets with 1,000 business cards and you, you pump them out to everybody saying, buy for me, buy for me, buy for me. Modern versions are these you know, blitzkrieg campaigns on Twitter or Facebook or social media, buying all this media, doing whatever it is to pump the market up. Um, you know, a common one's remarketing now. Uh, God forbid, you're, I, I was looking at a, a car. I just was interested in looking at the new BMW that came out. It's not something I want to buy. I was just curious about it. So I, I pull it up. I'm like, oh, that's a cool looking car. Now I can't get rid of that effing car. <laughs> Every website I go to, it keeps popping up. Uh, they're retargeting you. Yeah, retargeting. It's like, oh my God, I hate this car now. I, I, I want to destroy it. <laughs> Saturation, while it may convert some sales, it also brings about brand disloyalty, disappointment, anger. Like, who, who are these guys trying to target me? So it can actually kill the brand. 
A better technique instead of this saturation intensive approach is a quenching approach. It is appearing in front of your target customer as a servant, catering to them, um, contributing to the community, but not overtly selling constantly and hard. Um, one example is I did this with my first company. I was serving the hedge fund industry. I started going to hedge fund conferences. Um, not even as a, I wouldn't have a booth there or anything. I would just walk the floor and just introduce myself. My colleagues would do the same. And over time, just appearing in front of the same people over and over, they would inevitably ask, hey, tell me more about what you do. I really don't know who you are. And trust starts building. That's the objective, is not to saturate and try to manipulate someone into buying from you. It's actually to quench, appear in front of them, so you build over time that relationship of trust. Then when the decision moment comes that they, they want to consider a service like yours, the guy who's retargeting and pumping themselves in front of them versus you has always been present and contributing has the leg up big time because you have trust. So in our business, define our market and be a constant contributor to that market, constantly present, but not in a way where you're trying to push the sale. You're pushing your You're not pushing anything. You're just making yourself available as a contributor. You'll build trust, and you'll get mm -hmm. tons of customers that way in the long run. Sounds similar to dating, where you don't just go and overwhelm the girl on the first time, but it's a slow process, slow and steady. <laughs> Usually, that's what that's what wins the race, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, if you go too fast, you're going to get a slap in the face. Uh, <laughs> or sometimes, sometimes you're going to get the result you wanted, but that's probably not the girl you want to marry. Not the right client. Yeah, yes. probably. Exactly. So that's the problem with this target marketing. Sometimes you get the customer and then we say, okay, this, this retargeting, I'm not just picking on retargeting. This is a current example. There's many versions of this, but sometimes we get that customer. The thing is, trying to keep that customer becomes very hard because now they just go to the next one that, that targets even more aggressively. The, we want customers, at least I believe, customers that are established on the foundation of trust. Um, and the way to do that is that constant presence. When those customers come on board with you, the retention of them is so much greater than someone that you just did the hardcore in-your-face marketing to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the next one, the fourth one in this process is what you call root analysis. So tell us, yeah. tell us about that. Yeah, so ordinary farmers don't look at the root system. We look at the surface level for signs of blight and disease, and you throw down some, some pesticides. Colossal farmers look actually at the surface level, make sure that's being cared for. But more importantly, they look underground at the root. They use technology to look at it. And the key is this. The root system is the foundation of plant. If the root gets diseased or an animal like a gopher or a mole or something digs into it, it can kill the entire plant. So you need to protect the root system. In business, most businesses are doing surface-level protection and moves. We, we are out there doing traditional marketing. Uh, we, we, the old classic strategy of ask for referral. You serve a client and you say, hey, who else can you refer me to? Th those things work, um, but they're not the greatest technique. The best technique I found is colossal entrepreneurs tap into the root system of relationships. And what that is, is they go to their best customers. They've identified their best customers. They're trying to target where that community hangs out. But they ask their best customers, what other vendors do you work with? You know, not competitors, but, you know, in the hedge fund industry, when I was there, I'd ask my hedge fund clients, my best ones, what other vendors that, that uh, they work with. And they'd inevitably come back and say, well, why do you care about that? And my response would be, if I know 
you know, whoever your electrical contractor is, the security company, the people that provide your furniture. If I know these relationships, I can collaborate with them and collectively we can serve you better. I set up your computers. That was my business. These guys set up your furniture. Maybe there's some things I need to do. Well, my best customer said, oh my God, Mike, you're the first vendor ever to ask me about my other vendors. I'll gladly make these introductions. I'm going to benefit from it. And so they introduced me to everybody. Well, that's the vendor well. Once I made those connections with other vendors, they were serving a mutual best client that I had. But guess what? They had other clients just like my best client. I built relationships with those vendors. I catered to them. We did collectively serve our mutual clients better. And over time, trust was established. And guess what? The furniture guy started referring me to other hedge funds. I'll never forget the first call I got. Um, This furniture guy says, he calls me up and says, you know what? We're we're installing furniture for a brand new hedge fund. Um, They don't like the computer company that that approached them. Um, And they just mentioned, if we know anyone, and and we're working with you guys, with with Larry, that was another hedge fund we were working with together. Would you be interested uh, in this new hedge fund? I'm like, yeah, very interested. (laughs) And, And I started getting clones of my best clients. That vendor well, those vendor relationships, is the untapped golden opportunity for radical, explosive, healthy growth. It's a very interesting analogy from the pumpkin world. And and then the last one to me is probably going back, but one of the most important ones, you say pruning all the time, not just, it's almost like weeding out all, all the time and focusing on that one big one. So, so tell us, tell us more about that. Deb. Yeah, when I'm speaking about this to an audience, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about a guarantee because a lot of people hear the plan we're walking through and it's basically very focused on your best customers. It's it's very narrow. You know, the, again, the riches are in the niches. And when people hear this, they go, I have been told all my life, spread things out for safety and security. Give me a guarantee. I need a guarantee before I do a plan like this. And in my speech, I'll say, yeah, there, there is a guarantee. The guarantee is if you're the ordinary pumpkin farmer, you are guaranteed you'll never grow a colossal pumpkin. We'll never drive down any country road past a field and see this colossal vegetable just sprouting out of the ground because the ordinary process guarantees that that is prohibited. All energy, all resources, all nutrients, all the soil content, all the time of the farmer, everything is spread out. And that guarantees nothing colossal can grow. The colossal farmer, on the other hand, as the colossal pumpkin starts to grow, sometimes it fails. Sometimes the 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 pumpkin grows so fast it actually splits under its own weight. Sometimes storms kill it. Sometimes it just doesn't work. But what was fascinating about the colossal farmers is none of them said, ah, oh, the formula doesn't work. They would say it's simply not my season, and they would start with the exact same process with a brand new seed and start over again. In entrepreneurship, if we try to cater to all the clients, try to do all the things, we are guaranteeing we'll never have colossal success or colossal growth because it prohibits it. We have to have this focus. The thing is, I can't guarantee is that you'll be successful the first go around. It may not happen. It may fail because we have no control over the seasons you know, the economy, the competition, so forth. But this is the formula. We can look at any, any case study. We talked about Apple a lot, but we could talk about Procter & Gamble, any name, any big company name, Groupon, Facebook, whatever you want to think, any big name out there, UGG, um, any of these companies, it all 
follow this principle of focus, catering to the best customers, maturing and, and growing and replicating the best customers, uh, quenching that community, being a servant to the community, building trust, um, focusing on the root system, the well of other vendors. It, it worked. It always works. The, the thing is, it may not work for you when the season isn't right and you have to stick with the plan over and over and keep repeating it until the season matches up with the process. And that's when colossal growth happens. Mm-hmm. Sounds like to me, uh, this book is really a, a book on courage, on having the courage to say no, on having the courage to say no to everything else, to all the different opportunities out there and really, really, really hone down on what is most important. That's exactly what it is. I, um, <laughs> I just did a speech in Toronto, Canada last week, and I was speaking actually about Profit First, something we didn't we didn't talk about now. But I was talking about, it and these guys came up to me and says uh, and said, well, "We we planted a time capsule um, for our group. It was like a mastermind group. It was a group called EO Entrepreneur Organization, and they have these small masterminds, these forums. These guys said we planted uh, in our time capsule. We we put pumpkin seeds." And I was like, why? And they said, because you know, we, we read the book and they were familiar with it. And they said, but th- this is the formula for success. A couple guys uh, in the group had wildly successful businesses and we're trying to teach the other members, a couple men and there's a woman in there, trying to teach them this process they had mastered. And they said, we, we could never get across. But then once we read the pumpkin plan, the exact strategy we laid out, it just simplified it because the analogy was so clear. And now the other members had done it. And over the, the year or two since they read the book, all of them were experiencing colossal growth. So they, they just paid kind of homage to that concept. You know, I, and by the way, I, I don't, I, I'm not trying to say like I'm the founder of this formula. This is the formula that's been around for successful companies, you know, centuries before I ever existed. I'm just trying to give it an analogy or term so it has stickiness and that we as entrepreneurs won't forget this is the way to grow a colossal business. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and the analogies are so powerful. I mean, I started this discussion uh, when we started the interview with the same thought that it's it's important. These analogies are so important because they allow us to remember and to, to constantly make sure that we're aligned with them. Otherwise, it's hard to remember some of these things. So, And that's that's why you're such a great writer. Oh, well, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that's my, you know, that's kind of my shtick is to to take existing stuff. I, I'm, listen, I'm not inventing anything new. I realize that. But what I try to do is take perceivably complex stuff and make it simple and then tie it into something that we can relate to, these analogies. So hopefully that's what the pumpkin plant's doing. Absolutely. So as, as we did last time, um, let's just boil this down to three action steps for our listeners. Yeah. So, okay. So action step one is sort your existing clients by most revenue to least revenue. The reason this is important is the most revenue are clients that are demonstrating through their behavior, their actions that they like you and need you. So most revenue clients usually are your best clients down to your weakest clients, the ones that pay you the least. But do a second column too. I call it the cringe factor. Look at each one of those clients and simply when the phone rings and their caller ID pops up, are you thrilled that it's ringing or are you kind of cringing? It's the intersection of people that pay you the most and you love doing business with, your smiley face there, are the ones you want to clone. So step one is sort your clients this way. Circle the top 20%, the old 80-20 rule. Then we got to clone those people. That's step two. 
call these customers and spend time with them, ideally face-to-face. I don't care where in the world they are. It's worth the investment. Um, If you can't, get on Skype. But man, face-to-face is the best. Learn about their industry, where they congregate, what their upcoming needs are. Learn everything you can about them. And because the goal is once you know their, their mindset, and, and their industry as well as they do, if not better, then you can discover how to cater to those best clients and attract them. And you take this final step. Ask those best clients who their vendors are. Not your competition, but the complementary vendors. Other vendors that they're using for other services and get introduced to them. That's step three. Meet these other vendors, uh, get to know them, and cater to your best client. Clearly, you were introduced through one of your clients. You share a mutual client. Cater to your best clients by working hand-in-hand with these other vendors. That hand-in-hand relationship you have with these other vendors will introduce you to a wealth of other great customers just like the one that introduced you to them. Well, there you have it. Thank you very much, Mike, for an outstanding discussion on Pumpkin Plan. Oh, it's been an absolute joy. Thank you. So, my ambitious friends, have you heard of the 90-Day Mental Toughness course? Well, here's the thing. Entrepreneurship is one of the most fun and at the same time, one of the most challenging things you can ever do in your life. And it is definitely not for the weak of heart. It is a journey filled with defeats and setbacks and failures and challenges. And the winners are the ones who persevere through the toughest of times and come out better. I mean, just like diamonds are made only under tremendous pressure, similarly, great entrepreneurs are forged under tremendous pressure and challenges and difficulties. And the question is, do you have the mental toughness, the grit, the persistence, the perseverance, whatever, whichever way you want to call it, do you have the tools to handle the most difficult situations situations in your entrepreneurial venture or will you crumble under pressure? Well, we have crafted the 90-day mental toughness course to help you persevere through the toughest of your entrepreneurial challenges and come out a winner. In this course, you get one video and action item every single day for 90 days. And each of these ideas is taken from 40 of the greatest books ever written on the topic of mental toughness, from stoicism to Zen philosophy to behavioral therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, rational therapy, to warfare, to psychology research. It covers the entire gamut of knowledge in the field of mental toughness and from 2,500 years ago to today. And so it's, it's pretty comprehensive. Now, the course goes live on August 15th and the regular price will be $99. But right now, you can sign up as an early adopter for only $59. You're getting almost 40% off. And prices are going up every week. So now is the time. If you want in on the course, now is the time to take advantage of the current price before it goes up next week. So you can check out the details at 2000books.com slash tough. That's T-O-U-G-H, tough. Okay, well, until next time, my friends, go out and live a courageous life. 